Hey everyone, welcome back to the Going Deeper podcast. My name is AJ. I oversee life groups and discipleship here at Three Crosses. And Merry Christmas. We are concluding our Advent series called Sacred Scandal. Today we're looking at the story of Mary found in Luke 1. And so we got a great conversation in store for you guys. And so with that, let's go deeper. Joining us today in the podcast studio is none other than Pastor Danny Strange. Pastor Danny, it has been a while since we got to hop on the mic together, so it is good to be back and have a conversation with you. It is great to be back. I want to give a full disclosure that though we say Merry Christmas, we're releasing this on Christmas, we are not in the studio today on Christmas. This is... uh, this is pre-recorded as a gift for all of you, so Merry Christmas, everyone. Yeah, and I can't think of a, a better gift to give our audience than a brand new, fresh, mm. going deeper episode, hearing our banter on the story of Mary. So uh, Merry Christmas to all you guys listening. Uh, we hope this is valuable to your time. And so uh, let's jump into the story of Mary. It's found in Luke chapter 1. Starting at verse 26, we'll go all the way to verse 38. We're going to break it down bit by bit. Uh, And the first question you guys might be able to guess if you're a long-time listener. But the verse says, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. And so even that last line there ties the story of Mary to the genealogy that we've been tracing. And, uh, you know, one of the interesting things about this series is that I was thinking a lot about the different characters that not only are the main characters, like a Mary, a Rahab, a Ruth, but the surrounding characters. Uh, And so in this case, we see Elizabeth gets mentioned within the context of Mary's story. We see Boaz and Naomi uh, contributing to the story of Ruth. We see uh, Uriah. We talked about him last week and how he contributes to the story of David and Bathsheba. So what I'm interested in is not only the context, uh, help us understand Luke a little bit better, but um, what is the significance of Elizabeth's story placed right before Mary's story? Yeah, to understand Luke, uh, there's a number of things that we need to know. Number one, Luke is very passionate about creating, he says, an orderly account. So he wants to get all the details in order, put everything from start to finish. This is why if you ever listen to a Christmas sermon, it's probably in Luke because most of the details come out in Luke. Second, uh, we talk a lot about the significance of female characters in Luke. He is someone who draws out the women in Jesus' ministry more than any other gospel writer, and it's a beautiful thing. So we're not surprised to find Mary and Elizabeth here. But then the third thing that's maybe lesser known is that Luke doesn't merely draw out female characters, but Luke does a lot of work with gendered pairs in his gospel. So we don't merely have Mary and Elizabeth. We have Mary and Joseph and Elizabeth and Zechariah. We have Anna and Simeon at Jesus' birth. We have all these pairs of men and women together, and all of them kind of create these, this fullness of a picture about the significance of the event. So we can compare and contrast Mary's birth announcement with Zechariah's and Elizabeth's birth announcement, right? On one hand, Zechariah is a a priestly character, where Joseph is a in-the-lineage-of-David character. 
Elizabeth and Zechariah are old in age and they've been longing for a child. They've been struggling with infertility. And so the miracle of John the Baptist is, wow, we never thought we'd ever get pregnant. We're way past that date where Mary and Joseph are on the literal other side of that spectrum where they're not even married yet. They haven't been together yet, right? Mary asked the question, how can this be since I've never been with a man? Uh, and so just by comparing and contrasting these characters, we get a bit of biographical context, we get a little bit of life stage context, and we even get a little bit of emotional context where uh, Elizabeth Zechariah's pain is related to infertility. Mary's fear and pain, even emotional pain, is related to this kind of I'm a young, naive girl. My whole life's about to turn upside down. And so just by comparing and contrasting these stories, we can get some richness even in the understanding of what's happening here. I love the the pairing concept because we've been talking about in this series as well how a lot of these stories of these sacred scandals of these these women are the launching point of something. So we talked about Bathsheba and David as the launching point of the book of Kings. We talked about Ruth being the launching point of really Samuel, which also begins with Hannah, or even, you know, the pairing at the very beginning, Adam and Eve. And so, you know, one of the things I recognized as well um, in this series is that a lot of these women come with backstories, whether it's the trauma of losing their husband or a struggle to, to, to stay in the lineage, um, you know, hiding spies, whatever it is, there's stories that help us ground our understanding of what's going on. And then we get to Mary and Mary's interesting. And I'll just read the text right here. All it, it doesn't say too much about her. It just says the virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and, he will, and will be called the Son of the Most High God. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And I wonder if like the tradition of Christmas has brought a lot of our understanding to Mary, but the text is oddly silent about her backstory, unlike the other women that we've wrestled with in this series. So I'm wondering, how should we be thinking about Mary here? Is there any imagery that can help us understand what's going down right here? Um, it, it's oddly silent, but um, I, I'm just trying to grasp at like, okay, who is Mary? Why is she finding favor? What's exactly going on? But I'm not finding it. Like, Could you help us uh, wrestle with this tension here? Yeah, I think on one hand, the part of the beauty of Mary is in her normalcy. You know, we might even say insignificance. And she is a, a young woman from Nazareth, which is this, you know, when you hear about Nazareth and Nazareth in the Gospels, it's always Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? <laughs> right. There's nowhere town in Galilee, kind of in more of a rural area than like Jerusalem, compared with the Zechariah and Elizabeth, who are high priests at the temple, in the holy place, in God's city. So they're obscure. And, and that's, uh, I think a lot of the story that we can draw for ourselves is that God uses Mary, even though she's a no-name nobody with no backstory, no history. She's this blank slate for God to write his redemptive story into. 
And at the same time, I think if you look around Mary, you see a lot of significance. We see a, a linking between Joseph and Mary that doesn't have to exist, right? If it's a virgin birth and Mary gives birth to this child, Joseph doesn't matter. <laughs> She's not even married to the guy. And yet Joseph is significant in the story. The angel visits Joseph as well. Joseph is named as one who is from the line of David. And so Mary, even though she's not yet married to Joseph, mm. is grafted in by future marriage into this royal lineage that makes her suitable to bring forth the Messiah. And in character, when you look at Mary's wrestling with God, it's almost like Luke draws out that she's grafted into the redemptive story of God. Mary uh, says, I've never been with a man, which is a phrase that's pretty unique in the scriptures. The first time it's used is in Genesis chapter 24 to describe Rebecca, Isaac's future wife, who's not yet betrothed to him. And so in a sense, the symbolism of that phrase weaves her into the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because she is almost like this new Rebecca, who is the woman of the promise. Um, we also see when she says, I'm the Lord's servant, may it be to me as you have said, that's directly out of the mouth of Rahab in the Old Testament. And so mm. it's a lot of the things that Mary says is grafting her symbolically into the redemptive line of God's people. And her marriage to Joseph brings, her, uh, brings Jesus into this legitimate uh, place where he is an heir of the throne of David because of his father, his adoptive father. Where if you want to argue about, well, Joseph's not his real father, his real father, God himself, um, that's an even stronger connection with the deity of Jesus, right? And so um, from all angles, Mary is a beautifully insignificant normal person with a pure blank slate for God to write his redemptive plan on. But at the same time, all the symbolism around this packet passage shows uh, just how significant she truly is. It's fascinating. The Old Testament, I tell you, it just is, never fails at drawing these immaculate just... Um, connections to, to the story going on. Did so you just, say immaculate I don't, connection? I wanted to say immaculate conception, <laughs> but immaculate connection wow. with Mary. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, one of the things that you brought out in your sermon, which I found fascinating, was uh, the word study on uh, virgin, because her response is, how will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. And, you know, just a, a rendering of the text, reading it, uh, face value, this is the third time that this word virgin is used. And so it feels like the author, uh, Luke here, is trying to bring out this fact that she's a virgin. And uh, in your notes, you wrote down that this phrase was used five other times in the Old Testament. You mentioned the one with Rachel uh, just right now, weaving her into this story. Um, but could you walk through some of the other times that it's used? Because the thing about I know about the Old Testament is it's not always just rosy and nice. There's yeah. some weird stuff going on in the Old Testament. So could you help us navigate the significance of this response? And, and how does an understanding of this Old Testament background help us uh, empathize with Mary? Yeah, and, and you know, there's two answers to that question. Because the first one is, you know, the virgin will give birth to a child is a prophecy out of the book of Isaiah. And right. so that... Mary being a virgin, and many of the times the, the, the word virgin used is an allusion back to the fulfillment of the prophecy, that the, birth, the virgin birth of the Messiah. Um, but what, what we're drawing out here is that when Mary says, how can this be since I am a virgin, 
What she actually says, if you look at the Greek New Testament, is not that word virgin that's used in Isaiah. She says, how will this be since I've never been with a man? It's a different construction of the phrase. And that specific construction is what's used five times in the Old Testament. The first is the rosy, beautiful one, Genesis 24, just the blank slate. Rebecca, who was this beautiful woman who would marry Isaac. The other four times are some of the most intense, terrible, scandalous stories in the Old Testament. Uh, we see in uh, Genesis 19, when Sodom and Gomorrah happens and Lot says, take my daughters to the angry mob, he says they've never been with a man. It's the same construct. In Numbers chapter 31, there's a story of the kidnapping of the Midianite virgins who had never been with a man. In Judges chapter 11, there's a terrible story about Jephthah's daughter who he decides to sacrifice as an offering to God, a child sacrifice, and they lament the fact she had never been with a man. Or in Judges chapter 21, it describes the women of Jabesh Gilead who are kidnapped and given to Benjamin and Benjaminites as wives who had never been with a man. And so Mary is the virgin who gives birth to a child in fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah. But at the same time, you know, what I noticed is that when we're looking at the angelic encounter, we said that Mary was greatly troubled. And part of me wonders if her phrasing here, I've never been with a man, is almost <laughs> like Jephthah's, Jephthah's daughter saying, my life is over. I, I've never even gotten married. I'm still young. Like, this is going to destroy my life and turn it inside out. And so even though this is a beautiful fulfillment of prophecy, the way it comes out of Mary's heart and out of her mouth is in the most troubling way prop possible that like this is impossible and it's about to turn my life upside down one of those instances kind of sparked a thought in my mind i think it was out of judges the jabesh gilead scene where uh these women who have never slept with a man are essentially taken and it's so that movie have you seen that movie seven brides for seven brothers no it's i thought like, you were gonna say the movie taken no but <laughs> no that movie Neeson, both I've, I've problematic movies but yeah seven brides <laughs> for seven brothers that is like a reenactment of judges chapter 21 so anyway Yikes. that's a great christmas movie Yikes. for all of you uh black and white old time movie that's kind of disturbing when you think about it today yeah if you thought some of our you know previous messages were you know scandalous? out in left field scandalous <laughs> read judges chapter 21 yep. <laughs> uh the bible is full of interesting scandals but uh, I got to tell you, some of these scandals bring up a lot of questions. And Danny, I figured it's Christmas. And oh. so um, I decided to gift you with two skeptic really? questions. Really? Like a skeptical stocking <laughs> stuffer and yeah. then a skeptical <laughs> present to open? Wow, uh, we got to fill up the stocking I with skeptic Merry questions. Christmas. Merry Christmas to, to you guys as listeners, too. Um, but what I want to read is the, the um, angel's answer to Mary's... Uh, question, how will this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her six months. For no word from God will ever fail. And so we obviously have this birth story in our minds. We, we can see this happening right in front of our eyes. And at the same time, this imagery of, of being taken, being abused in that way, even with Bathsheba, um, being taken by the king and abused, it, it's kind of fresh in our minds um, in this instance. And so, you know, in my spare time, Danny, mm -hmm. I listen to a lot of things. Okay. And <laughs> one of them is... Uh, the most extreme skeptics. I feel like I do my research with the skeptic question to try and get like, 
what are the skeptics out there saying? And one of the things that they're saying is they come to this scene right here with this Mary scene, and they're looking at it through the lens of Mary being taken. Hmm. Essentially what they call it, it's a pretty crass term, so essentially what they're calling it is divine rape. That God, as a father, is coming and taking a woman uh, against her will and, you know, creating a son with her. My question for you, pretty tough skeptic question, but what would you say to the accusation of God taking Mary and divinely raping her? Is this the stocking stuffer question? Like, <laughs> I told you. Merry okay. Christmas. Well, I... I mean, if, if that's the question that somebody has, I'd be happy to answer it for them. Um, I think that the simplest answer to this is I would say, on one hand, we do see some, um, some description of Mary's immaculate conception that have sexualized overtones, right? The come upon you and overshadow you, this idea of like being consumed by the presence of God. Consummation is a word we use for sexual intimacy, um, and in the Old Testament, these are terms that can be used. So there's an illusion of sexual intimacy. I would want to be clear with a skeptic that nowhere in the scriptures or in Christian tradition do we believe that Mary had a sexual encounter with God. Right. That part of the immaculate conception is that somehow this baby was formed inside of her womb without um, sexual intercourse happening. And so I'd say that the biggest ingredient missing for that description of the event is there is no sexual encounter that would make this divine rape in that sense. And then the second one, I think that would probably just as important, but the first one is enough, uh, is that idea of consent. And I think that's what we see in this passage is that there's this foretelling of this is what's going to happen to you. And at the end of the passage, Mary says, I'm the Lord's servant. May it be to you as you have said. And so um, we don't see God asking her permission to give her Jesus. We also don't see a sexual encounter with God in Mary. Um, but at the end of the day, Mary does consent to the plan of God, and they walk consensually into this next season. And so for anyone who wants to use all these terms from today's world with human encounters, I would say right. there is no sexual encounter, and there is consent. And so any description or definition that you'd have of a sexual act of that kind is not seen in this passage. Right. And I think the mystery of this scene uh, leads to the the second stocking stuffer oh, of a skeptic yeah, question. Okay. <laughs> um, because I, I think a lot of people are trying to wrap their heads around what's exactly happening here. And, uh, you know, even you can see Mary's response saying, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. And going back to the top of this episode, it's kind of a foil of what Zachariah responds, where he responds pretty doubtful, and he ends up going mute. Mm -hmm. and, and so Mary is elevated in the sense that, you know, she was faithful. She said, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. So you have the mystery of what's going on in, in, in how this, this baby is formed, but you also have the obedience of Mary. And, and the question comes from um, Mary's place in the church, mm -hmm. because I, I think maybe people have taken this mystery and said, huh, something significant is happening with Mary and maybe she needs to be elevated um, to the point in some traditions of flat out worship, like mm -hmm. they'll worship uh, the Virgin Mary. Um, so if somebody's coming with that background, uh, what would you say uh, to somebody who looks at things like 
this scene and the Magnificat, which comes later in this chapter, and say, yeah, there's something special about Mary, the mother of Jesus, that needs to be upheld and, and worshipped. Yeah, I think that when I think about Mary, I think on, on one hand, there is something special about Mary. Part of what we've said already is it's in her ordinariness. Like that is part of the beauty is that she is the every person that any of us could have been Mary, right? And so uh, I do think kind of like what in our tradition we believe where Mary is not one to be worshipped. She's not one to be prayed to. I think we lean on the side of like, well, she's just an ordinary person like you and me. She was not sinless. She was not perfect. She was a, a beautifully pure vessel of God that God chose for her righteousness. But she was an ordinary person. I think that is true. On the other hand, like we look at church history, even very early on, like pre-Council of Nicaea, like early church history, and there is a, a significant um, adoration of Mary, even at the earliest time of the church. And, you know, I might get this wrong a little bit in the illusion, but it, I kind of feel like the early church viewed Mary as this amazing vessel that God chose to use to bring the most holy gift of all time into the world. So in the same way that the church or the Old Testament uh, covenant people always revered the Ark of the Covenant as this, this object that God used to carry his most holy things. Mary was revered as someone who carried the Messiah within her, one of the, uh, just a, an amazingly uh, beautiful person to be revered. We see that in the early church. But at the same time, if you look at the spectrum of church history, you know, fast forward 2,000 years, right? 1969, Vatican II, uh, we've got the Catholic Church saying Mary, Mary is not merely an ordinary person and she's not merely um, worthy of respect or honor, but Mary, they said in Vatican II, is co-redemptrix, that no one will enter the kingdom of heaven without approval from Jesus and Mary because you need to be redeemed by both Jesus and his mother, which we feel like, okay, that is not what we see in the early church. Right? And so even some theological growth that has happened over time in the Catholic Church specifically, which is part of the reason there was a Protestant Reformation, is along the lines of who is Mary, right? Is she someone who is a normal person? Or in order to bring forth the perfect Messiah, did she herself have to be perfect? Was she sinless herself? I feel like that's more of a logical leap than we see in the scriptures. We never see the scriptures say she's perfect, but the Catholic Church has said, no, in order to bring forth the Messiah, she had to be perfect. Um, and so we have this idea of the sinlessness of Mary, uh, yeah, and so worship of Mary, praying to Mary, the co-redemptrix nature of Mary, all of these things seem, there's very strong evidence, is theological development that happened after the age of the apostles. Right. But at the same time, I do want to say that when we look back to the age of the apostles, we do see that Mary was venerated um, as an important person in the history of God's people. And so sometimes I wonder if in order to kind of distance ourselves from Catholic theology as Protestants, that's what mm -hmm. we are, Protestants, um, we have stripped off anything that's special about Mary, where if nothing else, she is worthy of respect and the honor that she is due for the role that she played in salvation history. And even so much to say that she was a, a vessel that carried the most pure and holy object that's ever entered planet Earth, the Son of God himself. And so whatever respect you would give to the Ark of the Covenant, at the very least, you should give to Mary as a person. Um, though she is still one of us. She is mortal and human and fallen like the rest of us. Another familiarity, the opening of a story. And then uh, I'm even thinking about Sheba here where her story begins at like 2 Samuel 11 and it doesn't conclude until like 1 Kings uh, 1 and 2. 
So I'm, I'm just curious, uh, where does Mary's life go from here after she gives birth to Jesus? Uh, where do we see her, uh, where do we see her story develop in the scriptures? We notice Mary, you know, Joseph kind of disappears a little bit. Some historians believe that he passed away at some point in, in Jesus' childhood or young adulthood because he kind of disappears from the story. Um, we do see, I think, in the middle of Jesus' life, there's a scene where Jesus is teaching in a synagogue and Mary and, and Jesus' half-brothers uh, show up and right, he famously says, who are my mother and my brothers? Right. Right, those who hear the word of God and do it are my bro- mother and my sister and my brother. Um, I heard a, a, a pastor, a theologian, Tyler Staten, a couple weeks ago had said, you know, it's significant. It doesn't say my father, right? Um, the father is the father, God. Right, right, right. And yet in the church, we find our spiritual mothers, our spiritual brothers, our spiritual sisters. Um, so Mary, in a sense, kind of enters into the scene as another one of the church, um, just one of the subjects of the kingdom of God. In the same way we see Jesus at an early age disrespecting his parents for everybody's left at the <laughs> temple. And he says, I had to be in my father's house. It's like, well, what about Joseph, right? Um, and Mary's worried, sick. He's just a normal kid, in, <laughs> so to speak. But then when he speaks, it's like, wow, this guy is different. Uh, we also see Jesus at the end of, or Mary at the end of Jesus's life at the right. cross, where that's forecasted at the birth announcement um, of Mary when, when the Lord says, a sword will pierce your heart also. We see the humanity of Mary where she has to see her son crucified in front of her. And it seems that at that point, she's come to a place that she understands his identity as Messiah. We don't really know. In the midst of it is Jesus chastising his brother and brothers because they thought she, he thought they thought he was crazy in the middle of his ministry. And then they came to faith later, like James did later when he wrote the epistle. We don't know. But we, we do see that Mary pops up throughout the story and throughout the story, the character and the role that she plays is mom, is the one who is worried sick when he's missing, is the mm. one who comes to look for him when he's in the synagogue, is the one who's devastated when her son is dead on the cross. Um, and so we do see her continuing to play the role of earthly mother, which I think strikes a reminder, not just of the divinity of Jesus, but the humanity of Jesus, that right. um, he had a mom who was devastated when his life was given for the salvation of the world. And so it seems like the role that she continuously plays is human mother (laughs) in the story of Jesus. Which is fascinating because I think that ties a, a, you know, a proverbial bow on the gift of this series called Sacred Scandal. For the skeptic, Uh, that that gift? (laughs) Uh, Maybe not the skeptic stalking. Maybe that's what we'll call this section now. The the skeptic stalking. The stalker question, yeah. (laughs) But I think, um, yeah, just the idea that um, Jesus was not was a hundred percent divine, but also a hundred percent human, and so he's got a genealogy, and that's the stories we've been touching on in the Sacred Scandal series: Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and now Mary. And uh, yeah, it's been your non-traditional uh, Christmas series, which has been fascinating, and it's been so interesting to sit in some stories that we so often just fly over. You know, there was a lot of just pain and hurt built into Jesus's genealogy. That is essentially the story of Advent, the story of Christmas, when Christ comes uh, in human form as a baby uh, through the Virgin Mary. And so, uh, Pastor Danny, as you were preparing this series, as we come to the conclusion of this series, what are you praying we, we take away from this particular Christmas series uh, as we move on into the new year? 
Yeah, what's what struck me in this series, and again, thanks to Patty who designed the series for us, and I mentioned this a, a couple of weeks ago that uh, we had an Advent series all planned, and then when we were kind of talking about different series for 2024, Patty pitched this series for next year's Christmas, and I'm like, this is amazing. We have to do this immediately. <laughs> and so that was great. It's been a joy to walk through this, and I, I think what struck me as I read through it is just the just the way that we see such miraculous things happen through such a diversity of stories, through a, a, a Tamar who has to just scramble to bring forth a child of her own so that she's not just lost, forgotten, and put to the side in this world, and that God does not merely give her a child, but grafts her into the lineage of Jesus, or Rahab, who sees the judgment and wrath of God coming towards her. And she raises the white flag, so to speak, and says, I want to be on the right side of history. And God does not merely see fit to save her life or merely see fit to graft her into God's covenant people and make her part of the Hebrew people to this day, it says in Joshua chapter six, but sees fit to use her womb to bring forth his Messiah or Ruth, who was just a Moabite woman who was outside of the covenant people, and yet had this beautiful faithfulness to Naomi. And through her faithfulness and hard work and service to her mother-in-law after her husband and all of her brothers-in-law and her father-in-law had died, God sees fit not just to provide her a husband, not just to provide her a child, but to graft her in the lineage of Jesus. Or even Bathsheba, who is exploited and taken by the king, uh, and loses her husband from murder and all of that. It's like God sees fit not just to provide her a child, not just to restore her life in some way where she's able to be a queen, but um, uses her in the most significant way. And I think what, what strikes me is um, when we look at these stories, we are reminded that no matter how terrible or off-putting or scandalized our own stories are, it's never too late for God to not even just simply redeem our own stories, but to use us for generations to come. And I wonder what these women knew <laughs> and when right. they knew it, right? Did Bathsheba know all that David had done to Uriah? <laughs> did, did, did they know that someday the Messiah would come from them? I'm thinking not, yeah. and yet I'm sure they know now. Um, and so I just feel like, man, what a beautiful reminder that no matter what has happened in our story, God can use it in this life, but God can use it to change lives generations down the road and and we might never see them man i can't think of a better and more beautiful message for this christmas season where we're all you know scrambling to to try and find meaning at this point in the culture of, of just what's going on in our lives and you know the lord just weaving these scandalous stories together to bring about the birth of jesus the christ so pastor danny Merry Christmas to you and your family. Uh, have a good. You guys, you guys got any Christmas plans? Oh man, we got Christmas plans. We're gonna, <laughs> we're watching the Three Crosses uh, Christmas little special uh, devotional in the morning, opening some presents and uh, just laying low for a couple of days. Awesome. Um, so yeah, we'll get out of town later this week. But yeah, looking forward to a to a Merry Christmas. Awesome. Well, Merry Christmas, everyone listening, and uh, we'll see you next time. 